For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories. I want to thank everybody who has been listening to the Car Stories podcast. We have new episodes every Tuesday on iTunes and on Peterson.org. Today, I am joined by director, race car driver, uh, filmmaker, photographer, Porsche enthusiast, Jeff Zwart. Jeff, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, AJ. Good to be here. You are someone who I've actually met before, and I don't think you remember it because I didn't know who you were when I met you. <laughs> Uh, but I went to a Cars and Coffee, and I saw a gentleman and a gamund with his dog in the back. And I thought, well, I have now seen it all. And uh, I then asked the guy next to me, I said, uh, is that your car? He goes, no, I wish. And then he gave me his card, and he was Patrick Long, who I had no clue who he was. Uh, so I had all these great porch people around me at one time, and, and I had... No clue how cool it was until later on, and I learned. Oh, that's a good uh, story. But I want to get into everything you've done in your automotive and you know visual world. Uh, but let's start with the first question. What is your earliest automotive memory? Yeah, that's a that's a good one because you know obviously uh, the car is our enabler to get around the world, and and so you're always involved with them. But I do you know there were moments in time where uh, you know you kind of never forget it, and I think that. You know, for me, my father always had something interesting. My father was a uh, mechanical engineer, and he specialized in plastics. And so he was in the fiberglass world and ultimately in the you know composites world. And so he uh, bought a wrecked Alfa Romeo, uh, 1953 Zagato, 1900. Wow. Bought it wrecked. And... Uh, the front end was fairly smashed up on it, and he, because he was in fiberglass, decided to make a new fiberglass front end of that car. Kind of like a factory lightweight Zagato. Yeah, so he uh, he got rid of the aluminum hood and, and uh, made a new one out of fiberglass. And so he drove that as his daily car. And wow. I remember it had the gas cap seals with it from the Monte Carlo rally. It was quite a interesting car, but I remember that... You know, it was as raw and pure as possible and the sounds it made and the flames that would kick back out of the carburetors and that you could see under the gap of the hood and all these experiences as a little kid sitting in the back, which there really wasn't even seats back then, no. but sitting in the back going out to dinner. I just remember so clearly the sounds and everything of it. It had plexiglass windows and it was just a, it was pretty much so a raw kind of race car style car and it was what really kind of, I think, attracted me ultimately to driving kind of rally and race cars on the street as I do. So, And you grew up here locally? Yeah, I'm, uh, I was born in, this, born in Southern California in Long Beach and kind of lived in a lot of different places of Southern California. And then I, I lived in the East Coast, which was in Delaware, and ultimately moved back here for high school. So, uh, you know, be those both ends of the country and then also a short stand in Germany for a year. So kind of different ends of the car spectrum. You have very different worlds. I also read you grew up next to Freeman Thomas. Yeah, that the junior high school, high school days, you know, we lived in a little condominium community where everybody lived close together and the cool thing about condominiums that nobody would ever think of is all the garages are behind on mm -hmm. alleys. Yeah. And 
we would ride our bikes around and see what people had in their garages. And, you know, you kind of figured out what neighbors had cool cars in our mind, at least. What do you remember seeing? And the the thing that we really, Freeman and I talk about all the time is that there were a couple 911s there. And, you know, it's interesting because... 911s were kind of a choice then. You know, you, you chose to drive a big sedan or you chose to drive this little sports car. But to us, it was the sound. That flat six motor, hearing it come into the neighborhood, leaving. We, we knew each neighbor by name and what all about their cars and stuff. And there was one neighbor with a, a Bahama yellow 911S that we just were thought it was the coolest car on earth. Now, when you guys were growing up, did you sort of know each other these were our life paths we were going to take you know one would go into automotive design you would go into photography and cinematography and racing um or is it just sheer happenstance that two friends grew up to be such pillars in the car world well i i think that um for freeman and i at that time our attraction was just purely cars and that's what we had in common and you know, being living in Southern California, there were always something interesting going on car wise. And fortunately, my father was, you know, a car enthusiast. So you know, I was probably exposed to more things than uh, the average kid. And then, as you know, my father had an early 911, and he also had a 356. So we were very much in the Porsche world. And Freeman and I both loved that. But the fact that we kind of cruised around, we we're just attracted to the automotive scene, and that was what we had in common. And then we lost track of each other, literally, uh, during our high school years. And ultimately, we both ended up at Art Center. And that's where the world really began from a professional world and <clears throat> the attraction of cars. I, I, I've interviewed no, two handfuls of Art Center graduates uh-huh. by now. And I'm always impressed with them. And there is a camaraderie with them I always appreciate. But it sounds like you didn't go there. I mean, he probably went for transportation design. Yeah. You went for photography? Yeah, I went for photography. And, you know, just to, just to tell the little of my photography story, how I ended up at Art Center, I was basically a veterinary student. I was studying to be a veterinarian. I was living in Germany um, and planning on going to the university in Munich and working for a large animal veterinarian. And as you can in Europe, you can basically get on a train on Friday night when I'd finished work and wake up the next morning at Spa in Belgium wow. or at Sanford in Holland or Le Mans or wherever. And I would just follow the racing circuit while I was there on the weekends. And when I was at the racetracks, I would look around and I'd go, I really want to be a race driver. But I knew nothing about being a race driver. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the mechanics and I thought, well, I'm not mechanically inclined. I don't, you know, how can I be around racing? And then there were these guys on the other side of the fence from me. <laughs> And they were the photographers. And I thought, well, I like photography. Maybe I could shoot cars. And so that's how it really all started. And when I did research what the best schools to go to in the U.S. were, Art Center came to the top of the list. I went there. And then the funny thing is uh, Freeman and my paths came together there. His first job out of Art Center was at Porsche. And my first jobs out of Art Center was working for Road & Track magazine. And I was doing, of course, stories on Porsches, which required me going to Germany. So I would see Freeman in every little apartment he lived in in his first years of working for Porsche. And I went and shot covers over and over again in, in Germany for Road & Track. So did you have sort of the eye for photography before, or did you teach yourself this trait just so you could be around the cars? It's a little bit of both. I think that um, I had an eye for photography, but I didn't equate it to a career. 
You know, I think, you know, it's kind of like when you grow up, you know, you want to be a fireman, an astronaut, yeah. you know, and a doctor or whatever. And I chose to be a veterinarian, and I really thought I was going to be a veterinarian. But the even in high school, I did, you know, took filmmaking classes and, and won a state award for filmmaking. And so I always had that, but it was never equated in my head as a real career. So you had a knack for it. Yeah. And you have turned it and you've turned it far past just shooting for <laughs> magazines. Yeah. You've made the transition over to film and you shoot television commercials. Uh, you shoot a lot of automotive commercials. I would probably call you the, are you the go-to guy when it, we need to make a car look really good? <laughs> I'd like to think so. You know, it's, it's, it varies. I think we're in the business of advertising. So, you know, that's always a moving target of what the trend is and everything. But I've had a really satisfying long career. And I think it's because I've, motiv- I've been so motivated by the process of being around cars, chasing cars. And, you know, I don't just shoot cars. I shoot high action. So I'm chasing cars at high speed. And that's why that it was so natural for me to go from still photography into film because at some point a still photo wasn't good enough for me to display action. I wanted to shoot the whole thing. And so that's where filmmaking really opened that world up for me and was such a natural transition because in stills I was shooting the fastest cars in the world all around the, all around the world and I was certified with the military to fly backseat and fighter planes and you know everything that moved fast and was high action I was shooting. So when it came time to go into film, it wasn't changing what I was shooting, it was changing the equipment I was using to shoot. And what wh- how do you capture speed? You know, we have some photographs out here of Jesse Alexander who's a legendary photographer and the cars look fast. They're not moving. These photos behind us, the cars aren't moving, but they don't look fast because they were shot still. Is there, and I'm not asking for like a a trick or a tip, but is there a philosophy or something you've learned or adapted to make the cars truly appear to be moving fast? Yeah, you know, I think Jesse is a great example because, you know, he worked with limited equipment in the the 60s and even the late 50s. And and I, I just had the uh, joy of working with Jesse on a Porsche project that I managed last year for Porsche. And I just, uh, it's always a challenge. But for me, I think it's really getting, the way I define it for myself is that I want to be the participant in the event as far as the camera, not the observer. So therefore, my camera is always on the move. It's always chasing. It's always trying to catch up with things. And by that physical motion of chasing, catching, having close calls with the cars, it ups the action that way. And that's, I, I always say, I want to be so close it makes you blink. And when you blink, you feel like something's going fast. Well, there is a, a 4K video of you doing Pike's Peak that, I, I mean, it looks like your wheels kissed the camera lens at some <laughs> points. I mean, you, you were just so in your seat in that video, and it's so well done. And you are, uh, you know, just as you are a filmmaker, you are an avid driver and racer. Um, do those two qualities help each other? Oh, I would say racing for sure enhances my vision for filmmaking. It, it really does. It, it, they are so closely linked. And I think... You can you can break down so many things I do in racing and equate it to filmmaking. Number one, it gives me a really great insider's perspective because I've done lots of versions of racing too. 
I've done the Trans-Siberia race from Moscow to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia. I've done uh, the Baja 1000. I've done ALMS races. I've done the obviously Pikes Peak, but uh, variations from, and I started my career racing in open wheel cars and Formula Fords. So I've kind of been very fortunate to drive a lot of different things in a lot of different situations. And yes, my focus has been on Pikes Peak, but I've been able to be exposed to so many things. And, and so it really does constantly come up in my vision of what I'm going to shoot for a television commercial to what I've actually experienced. And, and as for it going the other way, uh, racing was just a natural desire in my life. And it was something that, you know, I, I settled in immediately and could do pretty well. And I love the adventure of rallying. So I started in road racing, but I, that adventure of rallying, of racing down roads that I'd never been down before, flat out, making decisions as you go. You think about that, heading down a road that's timed to get to the other end and encountering weather, encountering corners and decisions and braking and even mechanical things along the way and all this, all against time. That's so much like my commercial world where I leave, you know, get up pre-dawn, I start rolling that camera, and the other end of the day is rushing at me all day long, and that is the sunset. Once the sunset's there, I'm done. But the process in the middle of having to read it, react to it, do those things that you do in rallying is mm -hmm. so much like my real world of directing television commercials. And um, let's talk about some of the cars you've, you race and you, because you're a big collector, you're a big Porsche guy and a big racer. So what are some of the first cars you started collecting and racing? Uh, well, you know, from a, from a racing standpoint, you know, I kind of, for the rallying, I built a Mazda 323 GTX, you know, which is a four-wheel drive Mazda in 1988. And I ran it in the 89 and 90 U.S. Pro Rally Championship and actually won open class in, in the national championship in 1990. And I went away from it for two or three years because uh, my passion was so much to do it with Porsche. And in 1990, something happened. Porsche built an all-wheel drive Carrera 4. And so I spent a couple years trying to put together a program. And I got a program together to run in 1993 a Carrera 4 in the U.S. Pro Rally Championship. And I still have that car to this day. So that's been good. But, but you know, there's so many... I'm just so fortunate to live in this car world because there's so many cars that have been linked to so many things that I've done. My first car that I bought with my own money was a 1970 914.6. Not a, not a bad car to start no, with? No, and you know, it's funny. It went back to the same thing I said earlier. Freeman and I were so attracted to the sound of that six-cylinder motor, mm -hmm. that flat six, that I couldn't afford to buy a 911. But there was this 914, which was kind of this funny-shaped car, but it had that six-cylinder motor in it. So that's what I decided to get. Well, I still have that car today. And wow. I, I bought it in 1973. But something happened in 1997 is that I was asked if I wanted to do the Pan, Panama-Alaska event, which was an FIA marathon rally. It was 25 days, 10,000 miles, starting in Panama, finishing in Alaska, going through all these countries. And it had to be a 1972 or earlier car. So I thought, well, the car I'm most comfortable in is my 914.6, but I wouldn't want to take my first car I went to yeah. college with and run it. But then I thought, well, what if I do well? What if I do well in this rally? I want to keep the car that I'm rallying. 
said, well, I'm going to build my car. So I took a really pretty nice 914.6, built it fully into a rally car, and we ran it from Panama to Alaska. And I ended up finishing second overall in that event, in that car. And so, therefore, the first car I ever owned became that much more endeared to me because of that event. So, you know, those cars are kind of the cars that have been in there. But I've now raced, you know, 16 years at Pikes Peak with uh, 12 different Porsches. And so I've really been exposed to a lot of different things. Explain to me, and I guess explain to everybody, what is it about Pikes Peak? Because everybody here is Pikes Peak. (laughs) And I don't think... Hill climbing, I don't know, on the West Coast isn't as big as I guess as it is on the East and not as big as it ever used to be. But Pikes Peak is it's synonymous with you know the Nürburgring or um, I'm trying to think of what benchmark events people try to beat. But nothing to me seems scarier than Pikes Peak. Is that – are you really just at the limit that entire time? Yeah. I mean it's funny because – Pikes Peak is, and you mentioned Nürburgring, because Nordschleife at Nürburgring is about the same length of road as Pikes Peak is. So we're 12 and a half miles, we're 156 turns, 13 first gear hairpins, a standing start. You know, I have over a 70 mile an hour average up that thing. Um, The car I'm currently driving is nearly 1,000 horsepower, you know, at sea level, so we can run it at about 800 horsepower up there. It's as exciting as possible to drive it in that sort of car. Yet, it's as comfortable a place as could be to race for me. But that's because I've been there for so many years. And the interesting thing about Pikes Peak is that it's so definitive. There's no pit stops. There's no adjustments once race day comes. It's just go run flat out 12 and a half miles up, finish at the summit, way above tree line where you may leave the line and it's 70 degrees and the top may be snowing and 30 degrees. It just, it's a living organism that you're driving in. And the consequences are great there. I don't think about it on race day. Obviously, uh, it's an unforgiving place. Yeah. But it's the, the cool thing about it is you just put everything on the line on race day. And I drive differently on race day than I have the whole rest of the week. And it's just you kind of get that tunnel vision and you attack the mountain and you make the best of what it delivers to you in that day. But like I said, no pit stops, no nothing to change anything. You just have to leave the line and get to the top as fast as you can. And that that pressure to do, you know, now for me in the nine-minute range to perform in that nine minutes and get through all those turns is so incredible, but that's what makes – getting to the summit so exhilarating for everybody. And, uh, you know, because if you have NASCAR, if you have Indy and even Formula One and Le Mans, Le Mans they can get out. They have driver changes. But, you know, they talk about the G-Force on their body uh, and F1 the G-Force. But they're doing the same competitive, you know, the same laps, the same five or six, ten turns over and over again. So it almost becomes a muscle memory. I feel like Pike's Peak, because it's just one straight shot, is that just 10 minutes of exhaustion? Are you just, are you done at the end of it? Are you even, th- do you think about what's coming up or do you just have it, it's just muscle memory. You can go through that track in your head at any moment. 
for me, I've been there so many years, and you know, I've even shot television commercials on Pikes Peak. And it's funny because in the mid '90s, I did a television commercial where it was almost all helicopter work. Still to this day, I envision certain corners I'm in from the air to really? just know how they lay out. So, but yeah, it's so interesting how you feel at the top because from a physical standpoint it's you know it's nine minutes it's 156 turns it's not that big of a deal but you combine it with being at 14,000 feet this is an altitude that you know in aviation requires you to wear oxygen you know and to fly a plane at that altitude you can it there's so many demands so the mental demand the physical demand and then just the breathing and processing oxygen you really are worn out by the time you get to the top and I think that, you know, the, when I started driving the car that I currently drive with all this horsepower, it's sequential gearbox, no ABS, no traction control. And the air intake right behind your head yeah. inside the car. <laughs> That's the first thing I noticed is literally behind your helmet in the cabin of the car is the air intake. Yeah. And then you have some side louver vents just pushing air right into it. Yeah, That's a, it's a pretty uh, noisy, wild ride from inside there. But but it, the thing is, is that I that car was so physical for me to drive in so much quicker than what I'd driven before. I started wearing oxygen. And many of the best drivers there, Sebastian Loeb wore oxygen when he went for his record run. You know, it's just part of it now. And uh, and it's really interesting because the oxygen really does help. Uh, I feel much more refreshed at the top now. And actually, you can kind of take a hit of it when you get to the summit and really refresh yourself with it. And that really shows what... It's funny because it shows what it's doing to you physically by not having as much oxygen. And the car you, is Do you working, notice the so, car slowing oh, down? Yeah. Not so much in the car I drive now because yeah. it does have so much horsepower. But every car previous to that, I've you start waiting on it at top. And it's just it's incredible what it's, the expectations are to do it. And just as a little technical sidelight, when I drove the cup car in 2010, that's a, 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 a normally aspirated car. It had, this is a car that has 450 horsepower in normal conditions. It left the line with 375 horsepower, and it finished at the top with 285 horsepower. So you can kind of see so what, really yeah, what it does to, to, and you can imagine that what it does to you physically, too. And then you also do some vintage racing. I think yes. I saw you this year at Rolex. You were in a 906. Mm -hmm. yeah. How is that a walk in the park compared to what you're doing at Pikes Peak? Or do you have a competitive nature that put me in anything I'm going to try to win? Oh, I, I, you know, I think uh, winning is less important in the vintage racing, but having a great experience. But on the other hand, I love the difference of experiences that you have. You know, I look at probably one rear tire on my Pikes Peak car has more rubber on the ground than all four does of the 906, but yet each car gives me a different experience, and it slides around, and it's very loose, and, and you know, it, it doesn't have much braking, and you just kind of overcome all those things, and, and I really do. I, what I love is putting things on the absolute edge but from all different eras because it's so relative. You know, a modern car driven at the limit and then a car like a 906 driven at a limit, they all require a certain level of, of, of uh, finesse to it at that limit, and I love discovering that. And you also have to be, just between your, your trade and your passion, you're always finding innovative ways to capture your races or capture racing. Uh, how is that world progressing? Because, you know, we have, we have the worldwide 
wide world of sports where you saw some blurry F1 video, you know, and then like the Senna documentary. Yeah. It, it starts off, it's not great footage. Uh-huh. And then towards the end of his career, it's pretty great footage. And now he, with GoPros and everything's in 4K and everything's 60 frames per second. Uh, and now with VR, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can sit passenger seat with you and turn your head around and watch the race. Are you, when you're racing and when you're working on your cars, thinking of more innovative ways to capture all of this? Yes, constantly, because, you know, as a filmmaker, it was definitely a challenge when I first started filming because we had big cameras with 35-millimeter magazines on the top of them. We were had we really had to struggle to put them into the places I wanted to put them. Yeah, you have Le Mans and, where they have a camera on the back of a 917 yeah, or a GT40. Yeah, yeah. And now there's... 10 times the technology and something the size of a you know a matchbox car yeah and that's the hard part now is that because we live in a gopro world which is fantastic but it also is an expectation now mm-hmm. that we could put the cameras into the smallest areas and all that so i constantly try to think of other places i can put the cameras and work with them and and you know the our full vr world that's happening now and in so many projects it's evolving really quickly and I love the world that we're in right now because as a tool, the cameras are so uh, adept to working in the way I like to work, which is in the middle of things, as close to the action, and as involved as possible with the action. And do you see a, a future in the video world of where we're going? Will there be you know, drones that will just follow the car wherever it goes? Will there be you know, more in-depth VR racing going on is there a a path you're sort of looking towards down the road of where you want to take the technology yeah i think that it, it's really interesting because um like i said it's evolving so quickly right now and it's really more of the delivery you know of what we will view these things on you know i think that it's almost uh the technology that the cameras are recording things is outpacing the way we can view it mm-hmm. and so i think that's going to be the interesting transition is how we view this do we really need screens anymore to see these things or how you know and and there's amazing things we can now do just by bending and moving our iPhones around so it's it's a very um different time but i constantly look for new ways to do it it's kind of like the brave new world you know and and you you constantly have to have your feelers out of what's happening out there and what about racing? You broke your 10-minute mark mm-hmm. at Pikes Peak. So you're at 9.45? 9.46, yeah. How much faster do you think you could go? And is there another Pikes Peak out there you're looking to conquer? You know, I think there's a reason why the Pike, Pikes Peak Hill Climb is the second oldest race in America. You know, it's celebrating its 100th year this year. And it's because there is nothing else like it. There really is. And the history to it of starting in dirt and, you know, traveling up there in 25 minutes and things. And now we're down in the nine-minute range. For me, you know, this year um, our data showed we were going to run about a 9.25. And uh, we had a little bit of uh, uh, some management problems with the engine on the way up. But everything ran great, and, you know, we were at a 946, so we're very, very happy. But I, I feel that that was possible to be in the, mm-hmm. under 930. But, um, you know, I'm all, I like challenges, and I love different things. It looks like, uh, you know, 
I, I haven't given up on racing in any way. No. It's just, I just uh, am very comfortable with what I've been truly fortunate to live through at Pikes Peak of, of starting in the dirt days and going to days where it was half dirt, half pavement. Now it's all paved. And to be able to do work with a car and a brand like Porsche and take it up that mountain as many times as I have, it's just been really a phenomenal part of me that you know, is kind of a bit of my you know personality now. How do you feel about the paving of Pikes Peak? The, the paving of Pikes Peak, I'm so glad I've been there so many years yeah. because I really do know which way the course goes, but the commitment level it takes now because you know we were on treaded tires and on the dirt and we had already were sliding so to slide a little more wasn't a big deal but now we drive it so we run it right up to the level of adhesion right to that limit and lots of places on Pikes Peak you're driving way past what you can see so the commitment of leaving your foot down and going to the edge of the adhesion of the tires and going around a corner where you don't really know exactly what that surface is around the corner. The commitment is amazing now. And I find that, you know, if you could say it was fun, it was really fun before. I still enjoy it, but there's an extra level of tension because you are on so going so quick. It's a big difference between, if you look at, you know, I'm three minutes faster up there than I used to be. And it, I'm sure it's not only the pavement, but the car and you just getting better and better and better. Um, but yeah, it it's something that has always intrigued me, uh, Pikes Peak, and watching you go up. I mean, there's an inch of your tire is <laughs> is off the track, and yeah. by off the track, I mean off a cliff. Yeah. Um, it, there's no walls. There's no barriers. It's you're done if yeah. you go over. Um, it, Every, I mean, I, I want people to see this video because it's, <laughs> you know, in the world, YouTube has such great content for automotive content. Yeah. And there's also, I'm sure you probably know, a lot of bad automotive yeah. content. Yeah. So you can get a lot of great stuff and a lot of bad stuff. This video uh, is a testament to, I think, not only Jeff Zwart as the driver, but as the visionary of the filmmaker because it perfectly encapsulates speed and it shows what you can do, I, I want to say best, which is drive, but maybe second best could, next to filmmaking. What, do you, what is your best? What's one and two, filmmaker or driver? They, they really do go together. You know, I think the driving, I, I am a filmmaker and I love to drive. You know, that's really the order yeah. it is. But yet driving motivates so much. And driving has enabled me to travel the world and do so many different things and take me to so many different places and to look at a road and know it. I look at a road and say, I know exactly how it's going to feel to drive it, but I also look at a road and I go, I can know exactly how it's going to look when I film it. I know. You know, both perspectives and play that all the time, and that's the way these things work together. And literally, each motivates the other. And, and that's a, a, great, a great way to look at it. Uh, Jeff Zwartz, thank you so much for coming in. Do you have a, a website people can go to see more of you? Um, I would just say on Instagram, I'm at Zwart on Instagram, and I try to post a picture every single day of you got my automotive world. Great photos on there. It's at symbol Z-W-A-R-T, and we'll link to it. And we'll also put the video on uh, peterson.org. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Please tune in for new episodes every Tuesday on iTunes and peterson.org. And thank you so much, Jeff, for coming in. Thanks for having me.